Well, when you look at that, we're at episode 85 of the Planet LP podcast. I'm Ted Asfragadu. If you listen to our rather epic new music report for the month of September, you know we're pretty impressed with a solo album by Robin Taylor Zander. It's called The Distance. And we're thrilled that Robin is on the podcast in this episode to talk about the record and working in his dad's band, Cheap Trick. That's coming up soon. Connect with Planet LP on all the usual social channels, threads, X, Facebook, and Instagram. If you want to connect directly with me, email me at ted at planetlp.com. Also, please spread the word about this podcast to anyone in your personal network who's a music fan. Just tell them that Planet LP is on the most popular pod apps, or you can always listen to any episode at planetlp.com. And joining me to talk to Robin Taylor Zander, who'll be on in just a moment, is Pop Dose writer Keith Creighton. Hey, Keith. It's good to be back. And you know what? I'm so used to coming on with like a stack of new releases to talk about. It's kind of nice just to relax. And we're like, oh my God, we're going to talk to Robin Taylor Zander. How cool is that? It's going to be a conversation that I believe will delve into not only the album that he just released called The Distance, but the fact is he comes from a pretty famous musical family. His father, Robin Zander, is the lead singer of Cheap Trick and also a co-founder of the band. So, of course, we're going to have some Cheap Trick talk, but we're really digging this album, The Distance by Robin Taylor Zander. I think you introduced me to it, so you got to check this out. It ended up on the episode of, well, when we split apart the new music report into two, two parts, we talked about this album in depth. I posted a standalone sort of promo video or a clip of it on our socials. Robin actually saw it and liked it, shared it, and then his publicist contacted me. Next thing you know, we got an interview going and I said, hey, Keith, you want to jump in on this? You were the one that introduced me to this record. You said, (laughs) let's do it because here, if you haven't, for the listeners that haven't heard the previous episode where we kind of talk about the record, here's the nut on it. You know, there are a lot of, you know, as they say, child are the children of famous musicians, just like Mm -hmm. in acting and in politics and everything else that are, you know, kind of leveraging the, A, the natural talent that they're born with, as well as the industry connections to launch a viable career. And I think The Distance by Robin Taylor Zander really kind of holds up there with like the two Wolfgang Van Halen records. And I'm a big fan of Elliot Sumner, who is, you know, the child of Sting. As well as then, you know, Bono's son is the lead singer of Inhaler. And so the thing is, these are some of the best records that are out right now. And they both simultaneously, they, they tow that line where they bridge to, they could appeal to the same fan base of their parents' bands or artistry, but also they have their own unique sound to completely get their own fan base and really be their own definitive work of art. And so... I really like The Distance by Robin Taylor Zander. It reminded me of really good like Beach Boys and George Harrison records. Really amazing production because we talk about that a lot. Overproduced records, and I'd like to talk to him about that as well. And it really crackles. Sparkling mix, you know, really great performances. And he's responsible for most of the musicianship on the record. So it's going to be a lot of fun to talk about this with him. So let's get into the interview right now with Robin Taylor Zander. Well, we are very honored to have Robin Taylor Zander join us on the road. 
Robin, how are you? Thanks for being on the Planet LP podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm uh, currently in Wichita, Kansas. Got a day off, so um, it's good to talk to you guys. Great to have you aboard. And we've got many questions for you. I think Keith is going to take the first one and we're just going to kind of go back and forth. Yeah, so this whole podcast celebrates the release of The Distance, your debut album. So congratulations on that. We really love it. We talked about it on a recent episode. And so it looks like it was one of those rolling releases with digital coming out a bit before the physicals. And so we just wanted to see at this point in, you know, in the action, it's been out for about a month. How is the reception going? Um, excellent. I mean, I have um, the original record that came out in the spring of the 11 tracks. We did three of those acoustically in and re-released them as acoustic singles and we kind of like slow rolled them you know put one one out a month and everyone seems to like the acoustic versions along with the videos that accompany them it all worked out pretty pretty well for 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 us and and they sound great and the the label and jack um jack douglas everyone thinks it sounds fantastic so i'm really happy with it yeah so it seems like is this one of the new strategies in the age of streaming so you have like the physicals and i know then they do deluxe editions and all that kind of stuff so I take it then the acoustic then gives it another digital experience for the streamers? I guess. I don't know if that's how it was planned out originally. Originally, we just wanted to get as much content as possible. And that was one way of doing it, just uh, maybe filming me in the studio doing some acoustic versions of of the full band versions. And it just kind of shows the song, uh, a different side of the song and the way it was kind of originally written and composed, which is I usually write on guitar or piano. For instance, like on high and low, there's a piano version instead of acoustic guitar, and uh, there's a video that goes along with that. So you can kind of get a vibe of how I kind of wrote those songs, and um, it's pretty intimate and pretty cool. So according to your website, you you wrote about 100 songs in four years while living in Nashville, Tennessee. So was that like your postgraduate work in rock and roll studies or something? 100 songs in four years, that's not nothing. Well, they're not really like fully formed songs. I mean, we'll, we'll say like half baked ideas, <laughs> but um, a few of those made the record actually, you know, like stuff that I wrote in Nashville, things like time and need that's on the record or all our trouble. There's a few songs that I wrote in Nashville that made it on the record, but most of this stuff is actually older. It's actually from my early twenties. And when I used to live in Florida uh, growing up and throughout high school and college. So a lot of the songs were kind of, born from that time um all the newer stuff that i'm writing right now is i feel like it's so different from what i was doing in nashville i i moved right before covid i moved back home to florida and and then covid happened so for about a year there it was just kind of sat on the record the record was finished before um covid started oh really so this has been this has been on the shelf for for three years wow wow. yeah it was on the shelf for almost three years uh but the mixes weren't uh we had already rough mixes me and Kenny Siegel who co-produced the record with me and engineered the whole thing we had rough mixes you know my dad told Jack Jack Douglas who was starting up his own label at the time he's like hey you should hear some of my kids music he just did this record so i mean i already had the record done before i was even signed on with confidential records um or with Jack we showed him the mixes and he's like would you mind if if me and my friend Jay Messina you know take a stab at the mix and <laughs> me and Kenny were like bowing our our heads and our hands <laughs> yeah. and like get getting on the ground and like saying yes please uh yeah because looking and... at some he's some legendary stuff that he's produced and also you have paul coldry on there who we uh, know oh, yeah. from paul... like holes live through this and the ford apache yeah. studios he's a legend 
Yeah, I know. And we had him work on some of the mixes as well. It was a team effort. It was with Paul and with Jack Douglas and Jay Messina. So it was like the combination of those guys. Um, but yeah, another thing that Paul worked on was the um, master for uh, Radiohead, The Benz. You know, he mastered yeah. that record. Um, which is one of my all-time favorite records, a big influence on me, like growing up in the 90s, you know, it's just, so I, I, I wanted that kind of, you know, that ear and that little touch on the record. And you can hear it on some of the songs that he worked on. It's really cool. Yeah, that's one of the things Ted and I have been talking about throughout the year on the Planet LP podcast is so many great, like what could be great rock albums are just brick walled. They sound muddy or just too condensed. And what I really love about the distance is, man, you hear all the texture and the atmosphere in the room. And so every single performance, and most of those are yours from what we can tell, really sings where you can really hear the crispness on the drums and the deepness of the bass and then the multi-tracked harmonies. And so they did such a good job on that. Oh, I agree. Yeah. It's a very clean and clear sounding record. I wouldn't call it a rock and roll record, probably more a rock and singer songwriter kind of record, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. um, with some pop kind of sensibilities in there. It's not really a cheap trick. It's, you know, a lot of people that like know about my dad, they expected to hear something more like cheap trick. But when I put it out, I, I knew it was a little different than that. There's some sensibilities there and influences for sure. But it's more along the lines of Beatles-esque, Beach Boys, Bee Gees, uh, you know, Bob Dylan, singer-songwriter, even a little country kind of twang in there. There's a little bit of everything. So, like, the influences for me, you know, are kind of wide-spanning. But um, what was your question again? <laughs> I forgot what you <laughs> It wasn't a question. It was more of a rave, but you kind of touch on a bunch of things that Ted and I wanted to talk about because yeah. you do talk a lot about a lot about your influences, the 60s British invasion, new wave and punk. Like, you know, so when you were raised, you know, you're raised by a rock and roll icon. Did his musical taste feed his way into you or did you wind up exploring a lot of this stuff on your own and coming up with your own journey about what your influences are? Well, it totally is my dad's and my mom's record collections and CD and cassette collections. I mean, I was fortunate to like grow up in a, a house that had a lot of music in it. And what I would do for fun would, would be play long to records. When I was a kid, it'd be cassettes or CDs. Uh, and then when I got older, I got into playing uh, vinyl records. But when I was a kid, I'd play along to whatever my dad had. And he had all the 60s British Invasion stuff all the way up through 70s punk and all the way up through new wave in the early 80s and you know through to grunge in the 90s and brit pop in the mid 90s and yeah he had all that stuff so by the time i was born i was born in 93 by the time i was five or six i started playing along to like beatles and pink floyd and the stones and the who just you know playing along on a bass or or smashing a drum kit he never told me what to do my dad just always had stuff laying around the house and that's how I learned. I just kind of picked it up like they were toys and it just seemed like a fun game, you know, that I was playing. Well, it seems like music, you know, it's obviously the family business at this point. And it appears that you were bitten by the music bug very early in life. Was it always music for you or did you think about trying other careers? Always music. Always has been since I was a kid. I really started strumming like on, on stringed instruments when I was like three or four years old. I didn't know what I was doing, but I had rhythm. I could mimic. I was good at mimicking things, and I could see what my dad did on stage, and I would mimic it. Or, you know, I, I would watch how Bunny Carlos hit the drums and try to mimic it at home. You know, I might not, you know, do it the right way, but I, I still was, I was pretty good at miming it. You know, watching Tom Peterson play twelve string bass or Rick Nielsen play all those crazy guitars that he plays and jumping around stage. That's what I wanted to do. 
just watch a cheap trick to be honest can make you want to be a, a, a rock and roll musician yeah, I was going to say, you're, you're growing up with a father who's a founding member of Cheap Trick, and you're like completely immersed in music at home. But I'm sure even sort of the business aspect kind of made its way into the household because this is how your father made his money. Was there a time when you realized that your dad's job wasn't like many of your friends, like their parents outside of the industry? I mean, like they say, well, what does your dad do? Oh, he's in a rock band. <laughs> what? How about your dad? I definitely. I mean, he's a mechanic, yeah. you know, that sort of thing. Oh, for sure. When I was a yeah. kid, I think, you know, at a very early age, I understood that that was a different career because we all had our parents come in for like the great American teaching or whatever when we were in elementary school. And, and I think I was like six or seven and, and he came in and brought a guitar and a, a little reel to reel kind of recorder and said, this is what I do and started playing guitar and sang into it and recorded a little demo while he was in the classroom and showed them, you know, how recording demos works at his home and, you know, explained the music business a little bit as much as he could to a seven-year-old and what he does for a living. When someone's parent brings a guitar in to great American teaching, you know that, you know, whatever they're doing is pretty cool. <laughs> I, it's kind of like Talladega Nights when Will Ferrell's a kid and his, his dad comes in and, you know, in his race car suit. It's like, you're it's like the coolest that's, kid. Yeah. yeah. You're, you're automatically the coolest kid, I think for that one second, you know, but then people forget <laughs> yeah. about it. You know, like I've, I've, I definitely knew at an early age that, um, he did something different than my friend's parents. That's for sure. And did you go on the road then? Like, how old were you when you then started going on the road? Or did he just go away on tours mm -hmm. and then come home yeah, with he, tales uh, of lost cities? Yeah, it was mostly him on the road, um, especially when I was in school. I could go visit him during the holidays or, or during summer break. But other than those times, you know, when he was gone, I'd, I'd be at home. I really loved summers because I got to travel for three months after I couldn't wait till school was over because I knew that Cheap Trick, you know, they usually tour during the summers. They're usually on a, a three or four band bill and they go across the country and across the world in most cases. So I got to see places like Japan and Australia and the UK and Germany and Italy and Spain and a bunch of places, Canada and uh, Mexico, all before I was 10 years old. You know, I got to see a lot of those. So I was already kind of, you know, racking up frequent flyer miles, you know, by the age of 15. <laughs> I really was. I was still hoarding them, yeah, was, too. As, I was going to ask day. you, how old were you? What was your first memory of a tour? You must have been like maybe five or six. Oh, yeah. I was yeah. at least, you know, or maybe even younger. And you could really appreciate what it's like to grow an international fan base then. Yeah. Well, the Cheap Tricks, an international band, they really didn't get big in the States first. They got big in Japan first. And also a lot of their records did pretty well in the UK and in Australia in the 70s and in the 80s. They're very much an international band and they've, you know, they've always had a big pool over in, in uh, Japan. And so whenever we go over there, it's just kind of a different kind of atmosphere. And for example, since I released The Distance, you can see where all the streaming numbers fall into place and, you know, who's buying your music and and you know where from and what cities and what countries and the top two countries who buy my music are the United States and Japan. <laughs> so that's so awesome. That kind of shows you know how how much pull Cheap Trick has and the notoriety they have in other countries. Yeah, because Ted and I were old enough to remember Budokan when it first came out. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah, that shows definitely. Where we are. Yep. Yeah, uh, and I remember going to the record store and, and leafing through 
and just laughing at the cheap trick covers because it's your dad is on one side and it's sort of like, oh yeah, straight ahead rock and roll. And you flip it over and there's Bunny Carlos and Rick Nielsen. It's like, who are these guys? This is funny. Yeah. So it's just sort of this play off of these two contrasts. And then you listen to the music and it's like, it rocks, but it's got this pop, definitely this pop sensibility to it that, you know, it's very, very accessible. It's like the two, the two good looking guys on the front and then you turn it around and it's Archie <laughs> Bunker and, and an accountant or something weird. It's like, what is this? Well, yeah. Bunny Carlos always looked like the cop that just got off a long shift and is yeah. way too old for this shit. So yeah, right. yes. <laughs> yes. It so was then- Third or fourth yeah. bourbon of the night or something, you know, it's like, yeah, it's been a tough day. Then how did that transition for you and Dax Nielsen then to join the band? You know, because these guys are probably like your, you know, uncles. And all of a sudden, how did the offer kind of extend to, hey, why don't you kind of come along with us? With Dax, he joined in 2010. So he's been with the band. Uh, this is his 13th year. So he's been doing it for a while. I joined in 2017. So this will be my end of my sixth year. And next year, there will uh, that's going to be Cheap Tricks' fiftieth anniversary next year um, as a band, wow. Wow, and they still amazing. have three of the original four members playing in the mm-hmm. band. So, I mean, me and Dax really just are there for we're kind of like glue, you know. We just kind of keep things together and, and hold down the fort. I'm really just a rhythm guitar when I play with Cheap Trick live and and background vocals. So, I just play all the rhythm and and riffs and. And I double my dad's lead vocals or I do uh, harmonies wherever needed. So it works out great. But, you know, it's it's hard when you join a band that's been around for so long. You've got a lot of, uh, you know, lifelong fans and followers who, you know, they don't like change. So mm-hmm. there's a few mm-hmm. year period where, you know, it took some getting used to playing in front of audiences that have been seeing them for the past 45, 50 years. But, um, you know, I've gotten used to it now. Now I feel like it's. Easy, easy breezy. Yeah, and you're on their most recent studio record, which to me is one of their best. If I had to put their top three cheap trick records, I would put that at the top, you know, among the top. So congratulations on that. And it shows that a band now turning 50 could still be at top of its game. Oh, yeah, for sure. There's a lot of great songs on the last one. Um, And I mean, well, I've actually sang, starting with the Bang Zoom Crazy Hello record and all the way up through the last one in another world i've i've done uh, background vocals on pretty much all that stuff i haven't done any writing on those records but i've i've played some guitar and and done some vocals just for the rhythm and basic tracks but they were all great experiences because the songs were really good and uh the band was writing um still is writing but they've especially during that time the past five or six years they've been writing a lot more and they've been writing some cool stuff you know it's really cool to play on it as you were starting to map out the distance was there the urge to like, oh, should we extend an offer for someone to come in and lay down a part here and there? Or did you really kind of go in saying, nope, this is going to be a completely fresh start? Well, I came in trying to save money. <laughs> so <laughs> I had a certain kind of budget I was going. I mean, this is before I even had a deal with Confidential Records. So I mean, I was putting up money on my own to fund the record. So I kind of just did everything on my own because it was the cheapest way. I mean, in all honesty, that's that's why we did it that way. I didn't really... I didn't set out to be like, I'm going to make a record where I'm, I'm playing everything. It just was like, well, I can do the drums. I can do the bass. I can do the piano. I can do all the vocals, all the guitars. All we need to do is hire the people for strings and horns and pedal steel guitar here or there. You know, and, and we were able to do that. Um, Kenny, who I worked with, had a lot of friends that were studio musicians in upstate New York. 
which is where we recorded in the Catskills. And when we went up there, it was kind of, it was strange because I started doing all the basic tracks yeah. and there was temptations to be like, well, maybe we could call up your dad to do some vocal stuff. Or it was like, you know what, I'm just going to, I'm going to keep seeing the process right. out. And right. then we actually did have my dad sing on one of my songs on a song called Golden Rule. For the most part, everything else is me, you know, and I just, it kind of worked out to where it was easiest with my budget to just do it myself. Considering you play so many instruments yourself, why hire other people? Just go in there and do it. But I think with this album, The Distance, you were able to get, as you said earlier in the interview, you really wanted to do something that wasn't expected, meaning that it didn't sound like playing something that comes out a cheap trick. It's like a, a you can make the connection, but this is kind of a unique voice, definitely a unique voice that you put on this record. How long did it take you to put this record together? Well, once we um, we decided on a track listing, we, we kind of dwindled down about 25 tracks to 12. And then we picked 11. And then um, the 12th was kind of just um, a short acoustic song. And, and we were like, well, we'll just keep that for something else. So we got it down to 11. Once we got it down to 11, it became pretty clear what we had to do. Um, and I had pretty much all the songs, you know, charted out in my head. I, I'm not one to write down music, but I, I had the parts down in mm-hmm. my head. And I just, I demoed them all out at my house before I, I flew up to New York. So I, in Florida, I have a little home studio and I got a drum kit, and a piano and basses and guitars and amps and all sorts of stuff. So I just, I would basically just spend a couple weeks getting all the pre-production done at my house. And then we take those demos and and re-record them up there at Kenny's place called Old Soul Studios. That's the name of the studio. And that took you Um, roughly, what, a couple weeks? Or are you looking like three weeks? uh, Yeah, the whole thing took about three weeks. Oh, that's pretty good. We did all the 11 basic tracks in three weeks. Mm -hmm. And then we uh, went away and then spent another week and a half on overdubs. So a little over four weeks in total for the the whole shebang. We were really excited to see Michaela Davis on there. Right before the episode, before we talked about your album, we talked about hers and Southern Star, you know, which is an incredible record. And so it was great to see her come in and contribute some vocals and some, I think she played harp on your album. Yeah, Kenny, again, Kenny's suggested a lot of musicians. He's like, I got a lot of people I know that would sound killer on your songs. And I, you know, I didn't even hear harp on my songs because I've never even thought in those terms, but I was like, yeah, for sure. If you think that it would add something. And so he called her up and she drove, drove in and, and laid down a bunch of tracks on like half the record and saying some stuff in the background, some background vocals as well. It just turned out so, so cool. Cause the, you know, the way she plays harp and it, it's just kind of unique. And she, she brought her own setup and did all these crazy like counter melodies to what I had written and, it was it was really cool, you know, and the same goes to all the all the musicians that worked on the record, uh, all the horn players that Kenny called over. They were the guys that were part of Levon Helm's house band back in the day, and Ooh. so so yeah, that's pretty cool. I mean, you don't want to pass up those opportunities to work with with guys like that. Right. And, um, Do you know who Reckless Eric was? Oh, I saw I, he, I was he he's an old icon. Yeah, I was just about to get to Reckless. I couldn't forget him. Yeah. He's he's a legend. You know, he's so cool. Um, he actually had a relationship with Cheap Trick back in the day. They did shows together in the UK 
in the 70s. Oh, cool. <laughs> if you can imagine. So it was Reckless Eric opening up for Cheap Trick. So Yeah, so for people that aren't unfamiliar, Reckless Eric was on the in the stiff record scene. Yes. That was like Ian Drury and the Blockheads and Lena Lovitch and Christy McCall. And it's really cool to see an icon just kind of make a nice little cameo on your record there. Oh, I, I love him. You know, I love him for it. He just like, we offered him, how much, you know, do we owe you? He's like, just buy me a coffee. So we we, <laughs> so we we bought him a coffee, you know, like that's that's all he wanted. And I was like, wow, what a what an honor. What a cool what a cool thing. To, you right. know, I, Tell you what, I'll get you I'll get you an extra yeah, large. Right. right? Yeah. He lived, I'm not sure he lived probably like 20 or 30 minutes away from where we were recording. And there's just a lot of random musicians that have places up in that area of, of the uh, of New York, upstate New York. And it's such a cool, I mean, from Woodstock to Socrates to the Catskills to Poughkeepsie, you know, there's a lot of cool little areas you know, that there's a lot of musicians are, are located out up there. So I was kind of uh, pretty lucky to be able to have those people work on my record for sure. I, the first single I heard off of yours, was, well, was the single was High and Low. I started reading about it and it was getting a lot of press. So how goes this journey getting it on radio or how's it doing on streaming? Like you did reference that your music is popular in the United States and in Japan. Is the single doing well for you? Yeah, I think so. I mean, in terms of me being on a, a completely new independent label and not, you know, not part of some big conglomerate, you know, big label uh, industry thing, I think it's doing very well. You know, I, we just started doing, um, direct to consumer sales from our website of um, LPs and CDs. And um, those are doing really well too. I mean, a lot of people are buying from the online store um, as well as streaming. So it's, we're getting a lot of physicals copies being sold as well as streams. I think it's going to open up even more as the year goes on, just because my, my schedule with cheap trick kind of dwindles down. And then my schedule for uh, my own, uh, gigs opens back up so starting in november i'll be opening up some gigs for soul asylum which will be cool i'll be doing some gigs next year hopefully um yeah. on a bunch of festivals and if we could get those confirmed i'll be playing to a pretty eclectic kind of audience which is what i'm kind of going for will this be just you or are you assembling a band no i'm i'm, a, I'm getting a band for all the, the big dates um the soul asylum thing will be just me though because they they are doing an acoustic tour so they wanted an acoustic opener i'll be doing that uh, but i i do a couple of different things um uh, i use uh, 12 strings and six strings. Sometimes I bring a, an electric Rhodes keyboard out with me and, and I use a loop pedal and I, I, I do kind of interesting stuff live if they want me to. <laughs> and um, they're going to let me do about 45 minutes, which will be great. I can play the whole first record if I want. Yeah, I can actually see with Dion's Soul Asylum, I could see you doing a tour with Michaela Davis because the sounds are so perfect kind of together. So yeah, we really wish you well with that. And yeah, just can't thank you enough for taking the time to talk to us. I'll open up for anybody. Yeah, I'll play with Michaela or play with Soul Asylum or Cheap Trick or uh, you know anyone who will have me. I love playing live. It sounds like it because, I mean, obviously you're touring with Cheap Trick and then you're going to go out and do your solo work and promoting the new album, The Distance. Speaking of which, I think it's going to end up on one of our top of 2020 three this year I, i'm pretty sure it's gonna get there um i've been listening to it i listened to it quite a bit today in preparation for the interview and and i noticed that i was telling keith i said there's some albums you know they come out of the gate and they just like 
yes, you got it. You know, it can hear all the hooks and everything. And then there's others that kind of take a little time to reveal their charms. And this one, I feel like the more I listen to it, the more it's starting to reveal layers. And I'm like, oh, I didn't hear that up on first listen. And I'm really enjoying it. It's passed the big test for me because it sounds great on my phone when I'm kind of cruising around with my earbuds in, but then I have a really good quadraphonic sound system and oh my God, it just sounds spectacular on that. It's got a fullness, but it's also got space. And I think that that's something that we don't get a lot of as music listeners with current music that's out there. It seems like everything is, well, Keith references it. Sometimes it's brick walled, but it just feels like everything is just slammed right to the max in terms of the mix. And there's not a lot of breathing room, but I feel like there's a tremendous amount of breathing room. Well, that's the goal. Hey, and honestly, hey, talk about a good sounding record. Listen to the new Wilco record it just came out a couple of days ago. It's a, it's amazing sonically and the songs and everything. You guys are into Wilco. Okay, that one's called Cousin, right? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's fantastic. I'm, I've been listening to it for the past three or four days. We do a new music report every month. I'm sure that's going to end up on the... On our list. Yeah, check it out if you haven't already. It's good stuff. Yeah, because when I look at some of the great one-man band records, you know, with a couple of guest spots here and there, you look at the first Foo Fighters record, that was all Dave. You know, you look at the new, or the both the Wolfgang Van Halen records, and now we got The Distance by Robin Taylor Zander. I think they just all really hold up, and I think you're off to a very promising solo career. Oh, well, I appreciate it, and I, I appreciate anyone who takes interest in my records, but uh, I mean, I, I really do appreciate the time and the support. I'm just surprised that anyone likes it, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great record. It's going to keep finding new fans, and we're happy to help just get that snowball rolling down the mountain. Yeah, definitely. Robin Taylor Zander, the album is called The Distance. You can get it on streamers, and of course, you can get it on his website as well as a physical copy or wherever you buy your records. Robin, thanks so much for being on the Planet LP podcast. Thanks for having me anytime. That was a delight, wasn't it? A Talking delight. It's a complete delight. Yeah. And how cool, you know, so how fun that, you know, Cheap Trick is kind of touring and I can't wait to see him you know, get more exposure as an opening act for him, as well as that Soul Asylum tour sounds really good as well. Sure does. And I liked this conversation because it delved into not only his life as a young boy and growing up in Florida and becoming a, you know, infatuated with music. We also talked about Cheap Trick. You can't really ignore that because that's that's sort of the, you know, the the big elephant in the room. And then his own album, which is so different from anything that Cheap Trick has recorded. It's it's very dreamy in many ways. And, and it's an album that it grows on you, well, you writ large in the general sense. But yeah. for me personally, I've had to listen to it a number of times. And the more times I listen to it, the more, as I said in the interview, more it reveals its charm. So I'm really yeah. liking the distance. Yeah, I'm no longer drinking wine, but the wine metaphor applies. You know, it opens up after a while. And there's some really, really killer tracks. Like the one I beeline to now every single time is In Front of Me, you know, which is on side B track four. That song just hits me like a ton of bricks every time I hear it. I think people should yeah, check it out on streaming and then pick up either a vinyl or a CD from his store. I got mine on Amazon. And yeah, I would really love to see them in concert because you and I have been talking a lot offline and Cheap Tricks at that kind of magical stage right now where you can see them in a pretty nice sized room, but not at the back of a stadium. You know, there's all these big stadium spectacles. U2 now has their thing with the sphere and all these shows cost 
hundreds of dollars to get into. And most you have to finance, like you have to sell your car or refinance your house to get concert tickets these days. And so it's cool that Cheap Tricks out there doing a very affordable tour that gives a lot of bang for the buck. Definitely. And I looked at the ticket prices on on their website and, you know, you can get the deluxe package. It depends what venue they play. If they're playing, like I'm in California, so they're playing a number of dates in California, but I live in Northern California. The closest one is the Gallo Center for the Arts, and that's in Modesto, California. You can see them for well, about $89, $90 per ticket. Okay. I would pay that to see, yeah. but I've been having a little bit of a, a beef about ticket prices and yeah. I'm all like, why is it that to see a concert is so freaking expensive now? I mean, it's almost like yeah. you have to pick the one concert you want to see that year, and then that's it. You've blown your concert budget yeah. for the rest of the year. So you better make it a good one. Like Taylor Swift is obviously the one that comes to mind with the inflated yeah. ticket prices and and the fans screaming and yelling at the at Ticketmaster and then launching a lawsuit and then Washington DC gets involved and even President Biden chimes in and says there's some junk fees that are attached to this stuff and it just feels like gouging. That's that's how yeah. I feel as when I when I see some of that. Well there's a couple things going on and you could talk about well you're paying for the spectacle. I mean they're putting on next level light shows. There was an interesting thing when Beyonce played LA right after Taylor played LA. Beyonce didn't use a lot of the monitors that Taylor used. And it came out in some of the press releases was, oh, Beyonce didn't want to pay for those monitors. <laughs> so she scaled back her production to increase her profits. You know, So I think, once again, there is a little bit of a gouging going on. But I thought it was funny when you mentioned that, okay, let's say you can get two tickets for Cheap Trick for 89 bucks. One ticket. It's a, okay, it's a that's right, for 89 yeah. bucks each. Yeah. But then you think, okay, that gets you a really good full-length Cheap Trick concert. But then you were saying on your Facebook that it would cost $190 to see Getty Lee from Rush read a book. Yes. If you're a longtime Planet LP listener, you know I love Rush. And yeah. I'm, I'm kind of a completist when it comes to them. I used to spend whatever it took to go see them in concert. And the ticket prices got more expensive as the band toured in the latter years. But I still paid it. But as I said on Facebook, I'm not about to pay $190 a ticket to see Getty Lee stand on stage and read a book. It's just not mm. worth it. I'm just like, how do they get away with a hundred? And, and that's the cheap seats, by the way. Unless there's that's a killer light back. show. Is there a great light show with it? I don't think so. You okay. get a book. You get a copy of his book, no. which I'm going to buy anyway. You get to participate in a Q&A, but it's not. I mean, come on. It's it's a chance to ask a question, whether they actually answer your question or not. I mean, that's kind of a crapshoot. And then just the fact that he's in a smallish, not a huge theater, it's probably seats maybe, I don't know, 1500 to 2000, but uh, you get to see him relatively up close, but there's no meet and greet or anything like that. So again, I was just like, just the, yeah. the straw that, that broke the camel's back. I thought, I know that Ticketmaster is gouging people. I know Live Nation has got a virtual monopoly on yeah. venues around this country and they can set those prices. And I know even the artists are in on it because there's sort of this like, Hey, we've been cooped up for almost three years. We're looking to make some money. So they're going out there and there's pent up demand from the fans and they want to see these artists. So the prices get set super high, but it's like tipping. Yeah. It's like, Oh no, tipping starts at 22% and maxes out at 28%. Or oh, yeah. you can go, you can go higher if you want to. 
people got used to tipping or at least receiving those tips at that high level. But then when people start tipping maybe at 15 to 18 to 20%, yeah. maybe they get indignant, the food servers. And I'm, I'm guessing that what's going to happen is because the fans are paying the money to yeah. see these A-list bands, like even like a U2 to going out to the sphere and making, you know, just plunking down thousands of dollars because you got to fly there, you got to have put up a hotel, you got to feed yourself. They're going to get, they yeah. being the, the concert industry, they're going to get used to it. And once they get used to yeah. it, that's going to be the standard going forward. Income inequality is a big trending issue right now. Couldn't be clearer than the mainstream spectacle concert experience. Mm-hmm. You know, you look at, you know, how much even Burning Man tickets are let alone going to, you know, Coachella, you know, or Stagecoach or some of those big festivals. It's very expensive. So it's the haves and the have nots, you know? And so I'm just one of those where, you know what? I've seen a bunch of great shows in my life. And I was actually hoping one day years ago to see, I thought, you know, once again, this is the sign I need reading glasses. I thought (laughs) that the sign, the sign said cheap trick was playing Metro in Chicago, which is my favorite venue on earth. So I ran in, I bought tickets for 15 bucks. I couldn't believe my luck. But then when I got home and read the ticket, it was for a cheap chick, an all-female tribute to Cheap uh, Trick. So I'm like, oh. <laughs> Did you go? Oh, it was a good show. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Well, okay. There you go. <laughs> but so I still, it, 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 I've never seen Cheap Trick. I still would love to see them one of these days. So it's nice <laughs> to know they might be heading to the Midwest or to the West. So definitely. But yeah, yeah. I, I think those big spectacle concerts, but you figure you know, look at what a basket of groceries costs you these days, you know? Mm -hmm. So in some ways it's kind of relevant to where inflation is and all that, but also for people going to the concert, people create their own content and they get a lot of mileage out of putting on social media that they were at the concert. There was one singer that I think just yelled at one of her fans for videotaping her themselves at her show and she <laughs> yelled at him from the stage but you know that's what most people are there to do they're there yeah. probably 10 percent to see the concert and 90 percent to show their world that they went to the concert you know so. yeah yeah I, you're right you're right it's not just sort of fans getting gouged but fans have some of whom have their own agenda going to these shows and the sea of phones can get a little annoying, especially when you want to just sort of take in the music. And I mean, come on, they've already got videos, so you you don't really need to capture it. Plus, the sound isn't going to be that great when that's going to be captured by your phone microphone. So if you're ever going to watch that video. But it's one of those things where I think people, just like we were talking a couple episodes ago, I'm looking at, especially as they put fewer and fewer of my favorite records out on CD mm-hmm. and, you know, more and more people are streaming and they don't really care as much about the sound quality because they're listening on their phones. Right. The next generation is going to have a completely different relationship with music than I am. And so I could lament that my way of experiencing music is going away, but I mean, same thing. I'm going away. I'm not going to be around forever. And the new generation will experience both streaming music and concerts on their schedule for their price, you know? And so it'll mean something completely different to them. That's the way it is with music, right? It always evolves and the way in which fans experience it evolves along with it. And who knows what it's going to be like in 30, 40, 50 years from now. I still hope people find it immersive in their own way and find it passionate. Mm -hmm. They're passionate about what they listen to and that the cost of seeing your favorite band somehow somehow gets more affordable in the future. I'm old enough to remember when shows cost six to seven bucks a ticket. 
Now yeah. I was young and I couldn't go to a lot of those shows, but I have older siblings who did. And so they would come home with the ticket stubs. So I would remember that how much that cost. But when I started seeing concerts in high school, it was 10 50 for nosebleed. If you did an inflation calculator, yeah. $10 and 50 cents from say 1981 to 2023, it's about 30 bucks now. Yeah. And that's what I, that's what I paid to see tears for fears last year. When I saw them touring on the tipping point and I was, I was in lawn seats, which are basically the cheap seats, but I thought, Hey, this is worth it. I get to see a band that I really like. There's video. I can see them. I don't have to be that close. The volume's loud enough and it's kind of nice out. I mean, it's warm on a warm California night and here's a cool band that I've, I grew up listening to. And I thought, why can't that be the price point for the cheapest seats? 30 bucks. Yeah. And then, yeah, once you get closer, you're paying maybe, I don't know, it's fine. If you're paying close to 200 for the experience or 175, great. I just wonder, is it is yeah. the inflation rate that high that the economics of touring demands that they charge that much? Or is it just- yeah. I think uh, it's there. there. The money is there for the taking. I looked at, you know, I saw Prince and the Revolution, mm -hmm. the first concert, Purple Rain Tour. I think I spent 1650 for tickets, you know, at the Richfield Coliseum in mm -hmm. Cleveland. You know, a decade later, I saw that Foo Fighters, you know, Mike Watts show at, at Metro. I think it was like five or 10 bucks. And that's not, you know, for the 90s, that's really just ridiculously cheap you know, for yeah. the quality of the entertainment. But then last major show I saw, thank God it was a gift from a girl I met on online dating. But she took me to Lady Gaga and it was 275 bucks a ticket. Ooh. And I was like, I couldn't believe it. Wow. So I think what I definitely the, got a lot more out of those so $10 were those, shows. Were those kind of premium seats? Were you like close to the stage or were oh, you we were of, front row? Yeah, we were, were front, front row. row. Okay. All yeah, right. It was ridiculous. And just, it's a funny little story was her boyfriend bailed on her at the last minute. So mm -hmm. she went on online dating, created a profile, found me because I was a music lover and said, you're taking me to Lady Gaga. So she... <laughs> Cause I've got I mean, a golden ticket. <laughs> yeah, it was the revenge. It was the whole night it was a revenge date. Yeah, oh my she God. She just wanted to get back. So she bought me a wine, kissed me and I got to watch Lady Gaga for two hours. And then I never saw her again. <laughs> so, How, okay. But okay. You didn't see the girl uh, again. Or the yeah. woman. How was Lady Gaga? It was a good show, but here's yeah. okay. Here's my final point as we wrap up the podcast. Mm -hmm. There's something about like, especially going back to when you probably see cheap trick, you know, you're seeing a real performance where they're in the moment, they have their set list, but there's still something real that you're seeing. Right. The Lady Gaga, the Beyonce, even the Taylor Swift shows are so choreographed to the note. It's like you're seeing a Broadway show. You're seeing them do the same motions, the same lighting cues again and again and again. Everyone's mm -hmm. hitting their mark. There's nothing really real happening. You know, when I was thinking about that while watching the videos of U2 performing in the sphere, that thing is so choreographed with visuals that I'm like, okay, here's the U2 is just going to go through the motions for however long that set is for the length of the residency. And to me, that doesn't seem real. It's like going to see a play. You know, you're basically watching them hit their lines and hit their marks and you're watching a performance versus something that's a real organic music experience. You know, it's like when you see Radiohead, you know, they change up the arrangements of the songs. You really never know what's going to happen next. Same thing with Dave Grohl, you know, when you see the Foo Fighters, you know, it's a, it's a looser set. 
you know, right. and right. so you're seeing something very visceral and real where you're connecting, you're all in the, in the experience together. And I just don't get that vibe when you see the big Beyonce shows and Taylor Swift and stuff like that. So, but I to each his own. I'm not a fan of this band, the Grateful Dead or those jam bands, but bands that change up their set lists every night because the experience yeah. is going to be different every night. I could see the appeal of a Grateful Dead. Like that's why you follow them around because you're going to get a different experience every single night. The only band from the nineties that I know that does that is Pearl Jam. They yeah. change up their set. Then that requires them to know their entire catalog or at least a good chunk of it. So I think you're right. I think that there's, there's that, that sense of everything is choreographed. Like, you know, every lighting cue, you know, every applause line, it just feels like yeah. Wiki theater in a way. But then when you get a band that does kind of stretch out and does something different and dynamic or exciting, and it didn't happen the night before or the night after, then that makes it kind of special. Yeah, and like when Prince did his thirty-one twenty-one tour, every mm-hmm. single night had a completely different set list, and you never knew who the hell was going to show up. Now that makes it exciting. So I mean, that's why you would want to go yeah. see more than one show. Whereas yeah. you could probably follow Taylor Swift from city to city and see the exact same show, and it's like, yeah. oh, it's just like she did the the city before. She does one, I think, surprise song per concert, where you yeah. don't know you're going to get some deep cut. Okay, but yeah. To each his own, to each his own. But yeah, I think this was a fun episode. It was great mm-hmm. talking to Robin Ta- Taylor Xander. And yeah, go check out that Cheap Trick and Soul Asylum tour with him opening. That's some good stuff. Good price. And you're going to get a really good night of entertainment. Absolutely. All right, Keith, let's wrap this thing up. Thank you for being on the podcast. I know this wasn't the new music report, but loved having you. Looking forward to next month because we have more new releases to talk about. Absolutely. And thank you, dear listener, for listening. Without you, I would just be a guy talking into a microphone that would go nowhere. So I really appreciate all the Planet LP listeners out there who take the time to listen to this podcast. Until next time, so long. Take care. Take care.